0: Lord, we're grateful to be here, we're grateful that you have given us the opportunity once again to gather as the church, and Lord, we pray that you would do something in us right now where you open up our minds, you soften our hearts, Lord, give us ears to hear what it is that you're trying to communicate to us through your word this morning, Lord. Um, When we open your word, when we listen to your word, when we read your words, uh, we become a word-centered people. And what happens there is that the Holy Spirit takes those words and he further implants them in our hearts. And we're able to live out our faith. We're able to live out the gospel. So that's, that's our aim this morning is that we see you, Lord, as more worthy, as better, as the answer in our lives so that we can live out this faith that you have given us. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Humble us right now as we go to your word as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We'll go ahead and turn. Grab your Bible or your device. And we're going Matthew 6, verse 19. We're going to be talking about the money, money, money this morning. Gordon Gecko said, Michael Douglas from the movie Wall Street. He made this comment. He said, greed is good, is what he said. If there's one thing that pastors absolutely hate, to talk about uh, behind the pulpit, it's this, it's money, it's money. Um, And I think a lot of us would come to a place where we would acknowledge that greed is not good. None of us thinks that greed is good. If I went and I interviewed all of you personally right now, and I said, hey, Zach Watson, what do you think about greed? How's that hitting you today? He'd be like, yeah, that's not a good thing. I shouldn't be greedy. But yet all of us struggle deeply with this thing called money, with this accumulation of goods and wealth. It's a struggle for us as believers of what to do with the things that God has given us. And even beyond that, which is what Jesus is going to talk about today. How do we go after things? What is the right way to go after things? What things should we be going after as believers, right? Uh, 1 Timothy says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, is what it says. So Paul gives us kind of a picture of what happens when we are pursuing and when we're chasing and when we're driving towards the wrong thing. So this morning in Matthew 6, our goal really is to show how earthly gain can be a dangerous trap for those of us who are disciples of Christ, who aim to serve God with every part of our lives, which includes our finances. And what we've seen as we've been going through this uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus, what he does, what he's been doing, what his heart is for you, his followers, for the followers he was preaching to then, is that he's going after your identity. He's going after what we do based on who we are. Because what we do will always be based on who we are. And we do that in life anyway. That's something that comes natural to us. If you've gone to school to earn a degree... ...or you learn a skill on the job... ...it's your job title, isn't it... ...that you end up working from, right? Um, If you guys remember Kenya Cheston... ...she was uh, with us for about a year and a half. She got her nursing degree... ...and then she moved back up to Cleveland. But Kenya is now a registered nurse. She's been qualified... ...to do the work of a nurse. And so in the same way... ...disciples or followers of Jesus have been qualified to do the work of a disciple. And we learned what some of those things were a few weeks ago, when we went through the Beatitudes. What are some of those things that we're qualified to do? We're qualified to be poor in spirit. We're qualified to be meek. We're qualified to be people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are merciful, who are peacemakers, who are the salt and the light of the world. We're people who control their tempers, who guard themselves against lust who keep their promises, who don't get revenge, but they end up loving their enemies instead. And then over the last few weeks, we've been learning about how to guard ourselves against religious hypocrisy. Because it's just right there, it's crouching at the door, it's waiting to sort of get its claws on us all the time. Because when we practice things like giving and prayer and fasting, there's a tendency for us to want to get some applause and hand clapping from people. And so we kind of continue this morning with seeing how Christ is calling us how to handle our wealth. Or maybe our lack of wealth and how to view our security, and how to ultimately guard ourselves, again, as who we are, as disciples of Christ, against selfishness. So let's pick up chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to dive right into it. I'm going to spare you the 45-minute intro, which is typical for me, and we're going to dive right in. It says this, "...do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal." But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's stop right there, right now. Here's what's interesting as we dive into this. What Jesus is going to be laying out for us, essentially, are bad investments and good investments investments in the first part of this passage. We're not really given a definition here when he mentions the word treasure, what treasure is, but we know that treasure is something that we put a value on, right? So all of us have a particular treasure that we are valuing. And so here Jesus tells us that earthly treasure, if we're putting our value in earthly treasure, that it's eventually something that is consumed by the earth and that we shouldn't be spending our time ...accumulating things that nature destroys and that people can pillage, right? To get all pirate on you for a second right there. And what Jesus does right here is he creates just the broadest category imaginable for earthly wealth... ...by saying it's anything and everything that can be destroyed by moths, rust, or theft. He's appealing to a logic that I think all of us already have sort of like lodged in our heads that we know from experience, right? We know the things that we buy and purchase and go after and the things that are going to last and the things that aren't going to last and the things that are going to have a longer lifespan uh, than others, man. All of you, eventually, if you own a house, for example, are going to have to replace your roof, aren't you? Um, All of you, eventually, are going to have to paint your house. All of you who own a vehicle are eventually going to have to trade that thing in. Some of you guys are eventually going to have to buy and should be buying new clothes occasionally. Um, All of us are going to have to restock the fridge with fresh food because that stuff doesn't last. None of us, none of you has something in your possession that doesn't require regular maintenance or repairs, right? It doesn't exist. We don't have anything like that. And ironically enough... We like to think that we actually invest in things that last. The things that we get more value on, get a greater lifespan in. And yet, we end up investing in insurance because we know there's a high probability of those things getting damaged or getting lost or getting stolen, don't we? So nothing nothing lasts. Everything we have has a lifespan. And what Jesus is doing here is he's appealing to our sense of reason in that. These are unarguable points. He makes the point when he tells his disciples to not accumulate things that are earthly and can therefore suffer under the ravages of the earth. He's saying essentially to us right here, don't make bad investments. And man, we're just so critical of people who do that that aren't us, aren't we? Like, man, we're so critical of people who get sort of taken advantage of or get kind of taken in by like Ponzi or pyramid schemes, right? We just go, oh my gosh, how could you not see that? I mean, you're just being taken for everything that you have. And Jesus is saying, listen to this, fellas. A life consumed by investments and accumulations of an earthly nature, it's all a pyramid scheme. You're all being taken advantage of because none of it's going to last. That's what he's saying you won't be getting what you're promised. Because the return for a bad investment is nothing. It's zero. That's why it's bad, right? So earthly treasure is only treasure until it loses its value, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason why we have garage sales, isn't there? It's all former treasure. I mean, there's nothing you own that won't eventually take up residence in a landfill. It's only depressing if your definition of treasure lacks truth. And some of you know this through experience. Some of you guys have made quite substantial investments in things. You've gone after things that later on overturned. They flipped on you. They flopped on you. They turned out to not have the long-lasting appeal and security that you were hoping they were when you invested in them. So you know this firsthand, what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus tells the story in Luke 12 um, about what he calls the parable of the rich fool. And he says this, let me read this. He says, and he told them a parable, this is Jesus speaking, he said, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops, I got too much stuff, is what he's saying. And he said, I know what I'll do, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones, And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so just kick it. Take it easy, relax, eat, drink, be merry. Right? That's what he said. But God said to him, Fool. He said, This night your soul is required of you. And then he said this, And the things you have prepared... Whose will they be now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself. And here's the big one. And is not rich toward God. I mean, that's just a stunning thing. But what it does is it brings to light and it brings home this idea that the things that we put so much investment in, if they are not of an eternal heavenly quality and nature, they're all going to end up out of our grasp at some point. You know, I just saw the previews for, um, sorry, babe, I actually do have an analogy from a movie. Um, She made me promise I didn't, but I apparently lied. Um, But I saw the previews for a movie about Steve Jobs that's coming out, you know, and there's been a lot about Steve Jobs, and if if you buy and you use Apple products, you're always hearing about Steve Jobs. And you just think about, Gosh, what a, I mean, what a brilliant mind. I mean, we're all, we've all been affected. Even if you're not an Apple user, number one, I'm sorry. But you're still affected by, by sort of the, you know, the inventions and, and you know, what he contributed to society in terms of how we live and how we run businesses and how we communicate. I mean, this was a guy who God had given just a very creative, imaginative, and progressive mind to. Well, I mean, look at Steve Jobs. I mean, did he make a good investment? Well, yeah, I think so. To society, maybe. I mean, was that a good investment? I mean, are we using his products? Are they helping us in some ways? Yeah, I think he made a good investment to society. Did it provide security for him? Was he a secure guy? Well, I I mean, I I think he made a couple bucks off of those products at some point. So in this world, maybe. Yeah, he he made some cash off of that. But here's the interesting thing. A man with a greater mind than Steve Jobs once said, a guy named Solomon in the Bible said, all the things that he did, all the inventions and the creations and the buildings and the accumulations and the things that he built up for himself, he ended up getting to the end of his life and said, it's literally worthless. It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind is what he said. Is it? I mean, is it, is it really vanity? Was it really chasing after the wind? Well, I mean, again, back to Steve Jobs. I mean, every two years when my Verizon plan is up, I replace one of the investments Steve Jobs made to society because my screen is cracked and the battery life has been completely used up on my iPhone. So there's the investment. There's the investment he made to change my life that I literally have to dispose of and buy another one if I want to continue with what he provided for us. Everything ends up collapsing. And so what Jesus does here is he contrasts and he commands us to make a different kind of investment. That's what he's going after here. A different kind of investment. Jesus says invest in heavenly treasure. Invest in a treasure that the earth has no hand in destroying. He says that in verse 20. You know, my sister is a financial planner and her job uh, is to help people make wise investments for themselves and the people they will, they will eventually will their money to. And so when we look at what Jesus is advocating here to make a good investment in treasures, to lay things up for ourselves that don't suffer under being consumed by the earth, he's not saying don't invest. He's saying just invest in the right thing right and nobody here is against good investments do we and all of us have a sense of what those good investments are right we understand what a good investment is we understand when we invest something less into something our return will be less we understand when we buy a less quality product that that product isn't going to last as long as something that we probably invested more time or more money into right I mean, we just inherently know this—that we want to invest in something good. Let's let's just bring this down to a level we all understand. Taco Bell drive-through, all right? I mean, none of you are under any illusion that you are about to partake of a gourmet meal when you drive through the drive-through, speak into the speaker, order twenty tacos, fifteen burritos, and seventeen chimichanga Dorito tacos. Go up to the front window. They say that'll be, I don't know, $2.09. None of you bites into that chimichanga Dorita enchilada bowl and believes you're going to experience the same sensation as you would if you were at Fleming Steakhouse and dropped 100 bucks on prime rib. None of you guys think that. That would be foolish thinking. You didn't make that kind of investment. And so what Jesus is saying is that if we are followers of him, if we're disciples of Christ, our investments change. We're not going after, we're not laying up the same things that we did before we knew him. Now let me make a qualification with this, okay? Because Jesus is not talking about simply possessing or owning things. That's really not what he's talking about. We own things. We buy things. We acquire things. He's not talking about possessing or owning things. In fact, we can't can't even show hospitality or be generous unless we possess something to actually share or give away, can we? So we have to own things. We have to possess things. But everything that we gain in Christ is meant to be given away. But at the same time, different than the other things that we lay up, At the same time, it'll never be lost. So that's what Jesus is advocating right here. And then the question for us is, why does our investment matter so much to Jesus? Well, let's go to verse 21. It says, For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So Jesus literally drops the mic in verse 21 right there. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. One of the things that's distinct about the words of Jesus, is how centered they are. If you've seen a theme all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things you've noticed is how centered Jesus' thoughts and words towards us are on the heart. Jesus said, we find what kind of heart we have by locating our treasure. By taking an inventory of the things that we're most fearful of losing, and then realizing that that is where we are finding our heart most Lingering. It's a crazy thing that he's saying here. And the things that will be lingering based on what we're most fearful of losing will be hearts that are anxious, will be hearts that are fearful, will be hearts that are discontented, will be hearts that are angry, will be hearts that are greedy, will be hearts that are ungrateful, and the list goes on. But he's saying, one whose treasure, who is But one whose treasure is practicing the righteousness of Christ, it's going to be different. They'll have a heart of righteousness. That's what they'll be finding when they locate their treasure. So, our treasure here is what Jesus is saying, not only secures our heart, but it also shapes our heart. And our heart, it's like Google. It's kind of like a search engine. It always looks for what it loves. Man, your heart is like ferocious. It's going after things. And it's easily deceived at the same time. So that's why we need to be so on guard. And that's why he's saying what he's saying. Look what he says in verse 22 about our hearts. He makes this very unusual statement. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And then he says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So many of you have heard the phrase, probably all of you, the eye is the window to the soul. How many people have heard that phrase? Six of you. Um, (laughs) What's interesting here is that, I'm totally kidding, is that Jesus doesn't call the eye a window, but he actually calls it a lamp which is really unusual language. And what's interesting is that what he's saying here is that what your eye goes after illuminates what's going on behind it. So what your heart finds most worthy will be what your eyes find most lovely. There's a one-to-one correlation there. If your heart is filled with the light of God, the things your eyes will catch will be those things that please God. So 2 Corinthians 4 says this, speaks into this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there's that eye-heart sort of connection combo thing going on right there. And then in Ephesians 1.18, it says this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So there is a connection between what's going on in our hearts that illuminates what we are focusing on, grabbing us, what's pulling us in with our eyes. But selfish eyes, on the other hand, seek out those things that feed the darkness that's already inside of us. So our eyes are drawn to things of which there's already something stirring inside of us, and our eyes then are are just sort of like magnetized to those things. And they're drawn and they stick to those things. In the book of Job, uh, chapter 18, verse 5, it says this, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. And then he says this, the light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. So the thing that our hearts are most drawn to and, and most sort of immersed in and engulfed by will be what our eyes are looking at and trying to grab hold of. So it goes from the inner self to how we act, and the things that we go after, and the things that we give most importance to, and place most value on in our lives. And he says in verse 23 here, we just read it, but he said, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, he says, how great is the darkness? So really what Jesus is calling us to here is self-examination. What? Catches your eye? What captures your eye? I mean, think about that. What captures you? What are the things that your eyes keep going back and forth to? What do you find your eyes wandering to? Because your eye desires what your heart delights in. And in this context, an unhealthy eye indicates a heart held captive by wealth and selfish gain, which Jesus very distinctly is calling darkness. He says, if your eyes are only ever drawn to dark things, the darkness in you, he said, it must be great. So it's a warning for us that our eyes illuminate our desires. First John 2 said this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So these are warnings for us about what it is that we are laying up, what it is we are going after, what it is that has become the treasure of our lives. And we move on to verse 24, and he says this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says this line that most of us have heard. You cannot serve God and money, is what he says. So the implication here is that whatever treasure you spend your time laying up will be the master that you serve. So when he uses that word serve, it's saying something, it's implying something about our relationship to treasure, and our relationship to money. So Jesus brings it from being something we think we're choosing to what it really is, slavery. Ironically, Jesus doesn't say you can serve no master, does he? He says you cannot serve two masters. And man, we just, we know this in our own lives, we know this when we look at other people's lives, that money has such a powerful, almost centrifugal force In our lives. That it's impossible to be controlled by it and also be controlled by God. And what's interesting is that God, all through scripture, commands us to give our money away. To make sure it doesn't control us. But what's happening with money, what money does, the power and control that money has, is that it invites us to accumulate it so that we trust in it other than God. That's the hold that it can have on us. So the man who only desires wealth, interestingly enough, what Jesus is saying here, will end up hating and despising God because he will see God as a deterrent to gaining his heart's desire. All right? On the flip, the man who desires the things of God will end up hating and despising anything things that seeks to replace that. I'm going to say that again. The man who only desires wealth, and when I say man, I mean men and women, will end up hating and despising God because he'll see God as a deterrent to gaining his heart's desire. On the flip, though, the man who desires the things of God will end up hating and despising anything that seeks to replace God. So there's two very different things going on here for us. Hebrews 13 says this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, it says right here, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And then it says, I will not fear because what can man do to me? So if all of my security isn't relying and trusting and living within the wealth that I'm going after, I'm trying to accumulate, it means that I'm given some ultimate security in God because it's not being controlled by the earth and by men who can come in and destroy and steal it. I have something that is truly lasting in my life. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this passage. I want to just... I want to just uh, give us three exercises for us to consider as we, as we finish up this morning to understand the implications of this. Here's three things I think that would be helpful for us. Number one is to do a search for your buried treasure. Search for your buried treasure. First off, what's interesting is that God doesn't single anything out here. He's not being specific about anything. It's not the kind of treasure it's the kind of hold that your treasure has on you that he's talking about. It's not what you own. It's what owns you. All right? So for some of you, God has given you a gift, man. You, I mean, just everything you touch is like a piñata filled with cash, right? Money just is exploding everywhere. I'd love to meet one of you one of these days. And that's okay, okay? Because God gives us different gifts with the things that we have been... Uh, that that we are able, through our giftedness, to acquire. And he gives some people that gift. He's not talking against money here. Um, But what he is saying is be careful to steward the abundance that God gives you so that it doesn't become the home where your heart lives. It's not about hating money and loving poverty, okay? But it's about being enslaved by neither of them so that you're free to love and obey God. So that you're free to understand the things that are most important for you to be pursuing. Remember the first time your kid started eating dirt in the playground? I mean, you just, you freaked out like a bear was attacking them probably. Grabbed his hands and said, don't eat that. It's not real food. Even though he was a baby and couldn't understand a word you were saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Make sure the treasure you're accumulating is real treasure. And only something that lasts, only something of a heavenly nature, only mercy and justice and forgiveness and meekness and forgiveness, only those things are eternally kept things in the hearts of God's people. So search for your buried treasure because he said that is where we actually find our heart. And then number two, check the engine light. Of your heart. So, number one, search for your buried treasure. Number two, check the engine light of your heart. Jesus is saying, this is what's so interesting about what he's saying here. Jesus is saying, don't search your heart. And we hear that a lot oh, search your heart. You know, just search your heart. What's your heart telling you to do in this situation? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, search your treasure to find out where your heart is. He's saying, search your checkbook. To find out where your heart is. He's saying search your credit card statements. To find out where your heart is. He's saying go to the search history on your computer. To find out where your heart is. He's saying go to your Amazon wish list. To find out where your heart is. He's saying open your garage. To find out where your heart is. He's saying look on your calendar. And find out where your heart is. Because there's going to be stuff in all of those places, isn't there? If I check every one of these things for me right now, there's going to be stuff in all those places. The question is, will I find my heart in those places? Number three, ask yourself who your boss is. So one, search for your buried treasure. Two, check the engine light of your heart. And three, ask yourself who your boss is. Because until the deep desires of your heart change, man, you will be seeking out and laying up the wrong things. You will be slaves to the wrong master. When we look at this broadly, what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to this illusion we have that we're in control. And he reminds us that in reality, we are actually controlled by whatever is securing our heart we think we have control over things that we can't even stop the earth from corrupting we think we have control over things that a moth can come in and take from us who has the control who has the control there well the one who has ultimate control is the one who is actually sovereign Over those things. So who is going to be your boss in that? The one who is sovereign over those things? Or the elements that destroy those things? So ask yourself who your boss is. Because this is a matter for us of security, isn't it? When we get down to it. This is security. And what this passage shows us is that time takes away all earthly security. We're all traveling down a passage of time, aren't we? And when we come to the end of our lives, the question for us is, will we be leaving more on earth than what we have waiting in heaven? That's the question. And we've all heard about Black Tuesday. Remember the big stock market crash from 1929? And I think back just a few years ago in 2008 when We all got a first-hand view of what that might have looked like a little bit for us in our day. And people were so surprised by that. They were so surprised that they lost things that actually had never had any guarantee in their lives. And that's what false security does for us, doesn't it? It has an illusion of something for us. It's kind of like a prison cell for us in some ways. If someone locks you in a cell, you, you could almost believe for a second that you were safe from the elements. in some ways you are until you realize that your future lacks freedom. It's a false security. Let me bring it more to home. If I fill up a pool with whipped cream and tell you to dive in, it's going to be a sweet-tasting pool (laughs) until you hit the bottom. It's a false security to believe That something can suspend you when it doesn't have the weight to do it. So the questions for us are, what's controlling you? What treasure has captivated your heart? What security do you continue to invest in? Because in Christ, we've been given an inheritance, haven't we? We've been given an inheritance of riches. We've been given a security of trust that is unfading, that is kept in heaven. Our money, what's great about that is our money is under new ownership once Christ is our master. God has given all of us different amounts of money to steward. That's okay. That's what he decides to do. But don't forget that none of it's yours. Don't forget that none of it's yours. What God is doing as you are following him is he's redeeming your desires. God is redeeming the things that you go after. He's redeeming the things that that cause you to want to lay up these, these earthly treasures. He's redeeming your heart in those things. We can trust that God is changing us in that. And finally, it's easy for us to walk away from a passage like this and just kind of come away with sort of a, a checklist of things that we're going to, you know, throw away, give to the goodwill. Um, but Jesus isn't simply telling us to not lay up earthly treasures; he's also telling us to lay up heavenly ones. And it comes; those treasures, they come with a promise of incorruptibility, don't they? Of the hope that there are some things that cannot be destroyed but have a beautiful, lasting permanence in our lives. That's what Jesus is offering to us. He's offering something real to us. He's offering something eternal to us. We read this a minute ago, 1 Peter. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. See how he's working for us? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's what? It's imperishable and defiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. It's secure. And by God's power is being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In Christ, we are secure. There is no other security for us. And that is the greatest news that we can walk out of this old, dusty warehouse with this morning. Amen? Amen. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us such a great security in Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. In Christ, we are free to be secure. We are free to have an unending, unfading inheritance. We are free to have a hope that will not be dashed. By things that the earth can so easily destroy. Lord, I pray that this truth would continue to grow and flourish in us. I pray that you would allow us to locate our treasures so that we can find our heart. And that you would destroy our idols when we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Amen.